Welcome to podcast 171 from Wiggly Wiggless. Ooh, 171. That's, that's incredible, isn't it? It is. I'm Heather from Wiggly Wigglers and I'm sat on the Wiggly sofa on the Wiggly sheepskin and I'm joined today by... Farmer Phil, who's ah. trying to read some very small print. And? And Richard, alias uh, Roving Ricardo on occasion. And the news this week is <clears throat> Farmer Phil has got a seriously bad hair day. Right. We know it's haircut time because, Farmer Phil, what has happened? My cap keeps falling off. Yes, well, look at that silly <laughs> hairdo. I think we should have an, another yeah. campaign to get Farmer Phil to get his hair cut. Have you noticed that mine's slightly bulky as well at the moment? I'm, it's a bit I'm, curly. I'm in need of, uh, yeah. of a bit of chopping. But uh, I have to say that your own hair has yeah. elements of the haphazard about it. I have a root problem. A root problem? Yes. And I, I don't realise I have a root problem because I'm short and I look at myself in the mirror sort of parallel, but unfortunately I'm only five foot, so everybody else's view is of the top of my head. Uh, and I bent down to the mirror and I saw this stripe of different coloured hair, which I spent a lot of time dying just down the middle there. So I've I got think, a root problem. I think the technical jargon for a more serious problem than that is that you may have a root and branch issue some mornings. I see. Don't get that, do you? <laughs> anyway... At least you're um, not balding, though, uh, which is something that blokes have to suffer. I mean, Phil, fortunately, is not in that position. That great with mop that's glued to his suite. It's, uh, it's, it's far from balding. <laughs> <laughs> but equally, you know, it's, uh, it's a difficult thing for a bloke to come to terms with. You do, do have an expanding solar panel coming on. <laughs> I well, do, I really. do. It is, and I, my best mate Richie is also, uh, he's, in fact, Rich has got a, a little uh, appellation on the top of his head. Oh dear, <laughs> so, a top knot. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, for, for a chap that was so passionate about his hair, and, uh, you know, I remember his kids going out, you know, night outs, and we'd be like, oh, yeah, it looks good, man, you know, and you go out and stuff, and of course, it's all changed, it's all changed. <laughs> Anyway. We do like to bring in a bit of hairdressing into the show. <laughs> yeah, and uh, th- there's a brilliant link here, which I know Michael will have got his head in his hands by now. And that is that Di, our hairdresser, has got her first lot of Valentine's <coughs> bouquets in today. And she's busy selling them to all the men who go and have their hair cut. Oh, that's quite good. Isn't that a lovely that's idea? Clever, clever bit of thinking. Yes, yeah, and she's texted them. She's texted <coughs> her men list. Right. Of customers to tell them bouquets are in. Oh, really? Yep. Oh, what a fabulous. wonderful thing. Yeah. Here we go. We've got lots on this week's show, but unfortunately we'll have no time for it because we've discussed hair for so long. But coming up is pesticide follow-up. I have got a whole lot of uh, feedback. Uh, you, you obviously have, yeah. I wonder whose side they'll be on. We'll see. We've also got a Montecast, a weekly fact on wiggliness. Not only that, we're going to follow up on Phil's cow crisis of last week. Was it fluke? That's what we need to know. And Rich is going to tell us about digging in green manures. Mm. So let's follow up on Farmer Phil's cow crisis. Rich, you weren't here last week, but it was all doom and gloom. Missed the cow crisis, didn't I? Yeah, two cows were down, two cows were dead, suspected liver fluke, complete disaster. Two cows actually died. Oh dear. And it hasn't got that much better, really, has it? Did you feel a little... Do you feel upset when that happens? Oh, yeah. Well, uh, first of all, I should update you on the cow crisis because in some ways it's now worse because... We were puzzled last week because, in theory, a cow should be able to have liver fluke and it's quite normal for them to carry fluke and it wouldn't affect them terribly. They're not like sheep. Fluke will kill a sheep. But anyway, we tested our cattle for fluke and although one of the ones that died, we post-mortemed her, her liver was not as it should have been. We couldn't find any fluke in it and subsequently we've tested the muck from a number of the other cattle and can't find any fluke eggs in it which would suggest to us that fluke is not a major problem. Right. The two cows, well, essentially what we think we've done or failed to do is obviously because of the summer, our grass seed straw, which is part of their diet in the wintertime, is of less nutritious value than it normally would be because it got rained on. It's not mouldy or rotten, but it's just there isn't very much green in it, you know, and it's not as good as we would like. So we up 
the concentrate element of their feeding ration, the rolled barley meal with extra protein and minerals and so on that we feed them, right. we up that to compensate. Yeah. Now, it would appear that although the nutritionist says, I think that what you're feeding them should give them the required energy levels, it would appear that we haven't upped that concentrate level enough. Right. And what has happened is that any cows with some sort of compromise, something else wrong with them, and we think that the two that died would fall into that category, that's tipped them over the edge, and essentially they weren't getting enough energy to the point that they didn't want to get up. And the two that we've got on the ground at the moment, they're quite healthy, but they can't or won't get up. The one, I think, could, if she surprised herself, but as yet she won't. But, but isn't this, I mean, isn't the sign of this that they look hungry? Well, you know, aren't you supposed to... Cows are like wouldn't humans. Wouldn't they cry or, you know... Well, no, you see, the thing is that Don't cows... Don't look thin. Cows are like humans. Then you have thin ones and fat ones, genetically. So that the ones that succumb first are the ones that carry no surplus. They're the genetically thin ones. And they're not necessarily thin at that point because they haven't been fed or they haven't had enough grass. They're just naturally thin. I mean, you know people who can eat like horses and don't carry any fat at all. And we have cows like that. But those are the ones that if their energy input is not high enough, that they will succumb first. So to me, they look completely normal because they normally don't carry any fat. Then on one day they sit down and say, I don't want to play anymore. And we go through this rather tortuous process of trying to work out what's going on. And in this case, it would appear that we have failed to compensate adequately for the lack of goodness in the grass seed straw. There is a, an upside to that, that it's What's easily cured. What's the point cured. of having a nutritionist if they Well, do? you don't necessarily go through the diet every year because we've, we've used the same diet, but it's my job as the farmer to compensate for what I can see and what I think, which is what we've done, but it would appear that we haven't quite compensated enough. The upshot of that is that we give them more concentrate, which is what we've done, but they've um, got ad-lib food. They've got ad-lib grass seed straw, but there is a limit to how much a cow can eat in sheer physical quantity every day. So that although that accounts for a large percentage of their energy, once they're heading towards 15 or 20 kilos of that every day, they won't eat much more because they, they just don't want much more. But if a cow's out on grass then... They don't have concentrate, so... No, but the grass is more nutritious than the grass seed straw. Right. And they'll tend to eat more of it because they'll graze all day. But So the upshot of that is that that's not a very great story, but we do seem to have arrested the situation and we're working to try and get the two cows that are currently recumbent up and going again. Then to cap it all, yesterday morning I carved one of our very best cows, absolutely no trouble at all, Belter of a calf, cow up and about, licking the calf, went back an hour and a half later, cow dead on the floor, having hemorrhaged. No way. Which is something that we can't do anything about, and you just think, well, when it rains, doesn't it ever pour? Yeah, it does. And so I've got mother and father even bottle-rearing a calf for me, because obviously I'm getting to the point where I've got rather more calves than I've got mothers. So So how's that going to work? Rob? has got them on his nightly nurse thing. <laughs> nightly nurse. <laughs> nightly nurse. Basically, He's got an automatic um, milk feeding what machine. We, what you oh, do right. is feed them reconstituted milk made out of milk powder. Right. And that's what you do so that when they're very young, you use a bottle, but then you use a device which is like a sort of bucket with a teat on it so that you can fill it up with warm milk that you mix up. And your mum and dad are doing this? And my mother and father are doing that <laughs> for uh, one so calf. In the give stable? Him, give, yeah. the, give, him, give the old folks something to do. <laughs> a bit of focus. Oh, sorry, Adrian. There is, there is one thing for sure. The, the calf won't want for anything in that department, so that although he suffered the trauma of losing his mother at about an hour old, which is very sad, he's certainly in he the best He had his colostrum anyway. That he, he, he had he his colostrum. Well, Garby had to get, so to we, get it off the dead cow. We have oh, to right. get the colostrum off the dead cow, which okay. sounds very morbid, but that will be the key to his survival. Yeah, yeah. That there is no more important meal in an animal. How, did you, how do you, does it simply milk from the teat when get it's, the, when it's get dead? Get the or? calf to suck the cow Oh, it's, while it's on the floor. Oh, OK. Yeah. All right, all right. I know it sounds horrendous, but it, yeah. it does work, and it is absolutely crucial. And it's so much better. Yeah. You can buy reconstituted colostrums in, in powder form 
which if you're really stuck are better than nothing. Yeah. But there is no substitute for the real thing. No, no. You can freeze it and have some in the freeze. Okay. And defrost it and do it that way. And we have done that in the past. But of course the decline in dairy herds has meant that the availability of colostrum to freeze is very much reduced. You used to phone up your neighbouring dairy herd and say, can I have a gallon of colostrum, because that wouldn't go into the, the milk tank, and that there'd be no trouble at all, and you'd pop it in the freeze. But there isn't any but left. there's no dairy herds left, so that it's much more difficult to go and get some of that, so right, that we don't right. carry any of that at the moment. Right. Oh, well. Oh, well, There you gosh. go. So it's... Uh, yeah, well, that's so good, isn't it? I mean, in a way, I mean, it's, it's obviously quite sad, but in a way, it sort of keeps you on your toes. It just uh, makes you realise that, uh, you know, you need to uh, be aware of your, your husbandry techniques all the time. Can't, There's no you let can't up. I mean, sit on your laurels and, uh, you know, and just let animals, uh, you know, get on with their own devices. That's right. On that note, we um, added on to last week's uh, terrible cow crisis podcast that um, it was the first time that a beast had left Lower Blakemere, been fattened, tracked through, and has been taken to the abattoir for direct sale to schools. So Farmer Phil is doing the first school meals on March the... 4th. He's doing a dinner at Kingston and Thruxton School. Oh, wow. Isn't that cool? Okay, that is cool, yeah. And so now we're going to follow Farmer Phil uh, when he goes to pick up number 77. 77. What's the story on 77? Well, it started out that Will Morgan, who has had her since she was weaned and has fattened her, said that she was the appropriate one to go because she was fat and fit and nice shape and ready to go. And when I nice rump. When I went up to pick <laughs> well, her up uh, and, and saw that she was number 77, I thought, that rings a bell. I, I remember something about her. And the story behind her was that she was essentially orphaned a bit earlier than she should have been because her mother had got a condition called cancer eye, which is essentially cancer of the eyelid. And they'll wear it for a period of time, but if the flies bother it too much or it starts to irritate their eye, there's no cure for it. You have to put them God, down. Oh, we're full of gore today, aren't it's we? Not, it's not great, but essentially that calf was reared here as an orphan until she was weaned and then went to Will to be finished. So now she's going to be school dinner at Kingston and Thruxton. So yeah. it's quite a good demonstration of the transparency of the food chain because between the two of us we know all that yeah and whilst it's quite a sad story the fact that we know that is quite good because you know exactly where that animal's been and why it's been there so this week we'll follow (coughs) phil when he goes to tenbury and next week we'll follow him when he takes her to the abattoir and in a few weeks time we'll be at the school dinner moment to see if it tastes any good wow Good stuff. Right, we're sat at the kitchen table just sorting out the paperwork of this Aberdeen Angus heifer that we're going to take to Cinderford. And I'm sat with Will Morgan, who's looked after her for the last... Well, actually, it's almost to the day, 12 months, isn't it? That's right, yeah. And since you would have received her when she was about six months old, so since then, she's spent most of her time out at grass, I'd imagine. Yeah, and when you've had it, you put her in in the wintertime. What she lived on then? I mean, I've seen her with all her mates dancing around the shed this evening. But Well, she predominantly had potatoes when she came back in from grazing. And then uh, when that supply ran out, they'd been on meal and nuts and ad-lib silage. So basically grass reared all the way through. The potatoes this year, they either rotted in the ground or stock-feed potatoes have been in fairly short supply. Or they rotted in the box, yeah. Or they, they rotted in the box, but... Yeah. Um, I'd noticed that down our end of the county that there had not been a vast number of stock feed potatoes but um, she looks well now and fit to go how do you judge when you think she's fit? Well with the Angus crosses they they do tend to get fitter earlier and she just uh, had a nice glossy coat and got touched well um, nice covering let's say not to be too rude about her (laughs) and um, she she was looking very uh, ready and appropriate and do you think that the Anguses on the whole come fat quicker than the Charolais crosses? Yes, definitely. They're uh, a lot quicker to finish. And so... And you have to be a bit careful as well. They don't get too fat. Too mole-like. Yeah. And what... I mean, on that basis, if food is expensive, 
if you can get a respectable price for them, having fed them less food, presumably there's a chance that the money works out somewhere near right compared to the bigger Charolais cross. It does. It's all going to level up, really, isn't it? You know, mm. There's not going to be a, an ocean difference between chasing that extra weight and, and perhaps a little bit better carcass finish, but you basically end up at the same place. Now, I would, I'd have to add that this year, or actually this, this heifer is of the year which is of some significance, because according to my father, at any rate, it's the 25th year that the Morgan family have had our calves and fattened them to take them on to slaughter. So that she is sort of like a, a jubilee... <laughs> edition. <laughs> edition. Yeah. And I, I shall be suggesting to Mr Ensor that it, she's worth a mint on that basis. <laughs> I well, fear yeah, I know it. the answer. But it's quite interesting because we've always worked on the basis that you have the cattle and pay us what you think they're worth, which we've always been very satisfied with. And it's, I think it's quite an unusual way of carrying on. I don't, I don't know many other people who sell their cattle that way. No, I think it's a, a unique system that my father and your father developed, and we're trying to continue now. But uh, it's interesting because it does work. And, I, I, you know, you can, once you take off all the commissions and haulage and transport charges and this, that and the other that everybody else succumbs to... Exactly, you know, it's a good 20 or £30 pounds yeah. difference there, you know, from... Notwithstanding the hassle to the animal. The animal is picked up and quietly brought from one place to another with no stress or added inconvenience, really. So anyway, what will happen now is that she'll go now to the abattoir at Cinderford, where she'll be slaughtered, and then the meat is going to be hung for nearly four weeks. It'll be three and a bit weeks before our school dinner at Kingston and Thruxton, which I gather you're hopefully going to... Well, I suppose the lure of food, you'd be along there well, anyway. of course, yeah. Um, any, any so freebie. We should be able to see the, the fruits of your labours. <coughs> so we'll look forward to that, and we'll catch up with you there. That'll be good. It's time for a Montycast, a weekly fact on wiggliness. Montycast, a weekly fact on wiggliness. Badgers are less active during the winter months, but they do not hibernate. Another Montycast, a weekly fact on wiggliness, next week. And Megan feeds back on podcast 169, which was the testosterone trolley dash, (laughs) she says. Which I I won. I loved this week's podcast, especially the testosterone challenge. Hilarious. Well, I too thought it was absolutely hilarious, but if you are new to the show, it's probably worth avoiding in the same way that number 100 is definitely worth avoiding until you're in the swing of things. (laughs) And today we carry on with this miserable podcast of death and gloom. (laughs) (sighs) Pesticide row. Here we go. Podchef's diatribe. (laughs) Dearest ones, I listened with great interest to the latest row. I've been following the EU vote and how it affects British farmers on farming today. I must say that a call for a derogation in the face of a ban does UK farmers on the whole an injustice. Have we become so dependent on Bayer and Sagenta that we cannot see our way beyond their chemical fix? It's going your way, Rich. (laughs) I do agree, nevertheless, that crops must be protected and food production cannot take a hit in these troubled times. However, I think that conventional agricultural models have seen their day and are fearful of the end. What happens to chemically derived solutions and application methods when the fossil fuel they rely on are too costly or too limited to make it practical or cost-effective? Now, I don't want to diffuse the row or get sidetracked on the issue of whether peak oil exists or not, but the spectra does loom out there. Back to the topic, Farmer Phil. I was surprised at your comments that spraying leachate of worm castings would be too impractical for acres of crops. Perhaps I don't understand application methods, but how does one apply fungicides and synthetically derived treatments? Surely the method would be the same or similar. Likewise with spraying EM or Bokashi leachate. Farmers in the States do this regularly. Wait. As to the difference between worm casts, Bokashi and silage leachate versus Bayer crop science best brews, 
I think that valid important points were missed. Firstly, silage leachate is just vile. Its own concentrated vileness is made even more so by the fact that under normal conditions and conventionally produced, it has been doused with scientific wonder potions. Bokashi and worm juice are more organic and would contain less harmful things. As for the fact that all three things contain chemicals as their base elements, I don't think that can be disputed. However, I feel that arguments like even water can be harmful if taken in enough concentration are foolishly misapplied in this instance. Bokashi juice and worm castings contain billions of living, beneficial microbes and soil enhancers. Sprayed on crops, they may control fungi, blight and pests. They do no harm to the soil, the plant or human health. Wait. Now, one may argue that modern crop science has created chemicals which are no worse. Then why all the protective gear and all the warnings? What happened last year with the allotment and the straw issue? A chemical sprayed on arable land transmitted to straw. It didn't break down in the soil. It contaminated and ruined whole food protection systems. It killed the soil for years. The one thing we are running out of... that is a little uh, poorly informed, that paragraph. Wait! The one thing we are running out on this planet faster than ever is soil. We need to protect the very thing that grows this life at all costs. While it's true crop science has created chemicals derived from plants, their synthetic nature works too much against the natural order and health to make their long-term use safe or practical. Now you're right, Podchef. Ricardo has got a smirk on his face, and now it says, Now, Ricardo can wipe the smirk off his face. (laughs) (laughs) I firmly believe that certain chemicals and methods of crop production cannot be replaced by an all-organic-only system. The amount of chemicals most organic producers use, while they may be different to their conventional counterparts, are no less numerous or diverse. Bordeaux mixture, strong concentrates of garlic, etc., are harmful to the soil, wildlife and humans if overdone, yet they're fully allowed in a certified organic system. I think there's interesting middle ground, an opportunity for a challenge presented by what was said in last week's row. Why not do a trial on worm casting leachate on wheat fill? Take a patch that you will be keeping anyway to feed your pigs or chickens and see what happens. Make sure it's well enough from a conventionally (coughs) treated crop and experiment. It would draw the attention to wiggly wigglers and the possibilities of alternative methods of crop protection if it works. And if it doesn't work, then you, Phil will have the satisfaction of wiping the smug smiles off your couchmates. On the whole, I think the EU-wide pesticide ban is a good thing. It's now up to the UK to respond with panache and for UK farmers to quit whinging and show the stuff they're made of. There need to be tariffs imposed on crops imported from countries outside the ban and there needs to be public support for farmers who don't use chemicals or find safer alternative methods of crop protection. It's a huge opportunity. I think the British public wants to hear that their food is being produced in a way that takes their well-being, environment's well-being in hand. All they get now is a negative image of farmers crying foul, just as public opinion was on the uptake. Well... I'm sure I've stirred the pot enough for now. I am yours affectionately, It's great that he uh, feels strongly enough to spend as much time composing such a message. And, uh, you know, it's very detailed, comprehensive, and it's a good insight into what is, in many respects, absolutely right. Yeah, I mean, there are obviously elements of what he says that's uh, perhaps slightly inaccurate, but I think, generally speaking, you know, he's pretty much on the button. The most important aspect of all this is that we, as farmers, don't underestimate or patronise the food consumers, the, the people who hold these opinions. Now... You've just, done, you've just done that. No, way. I'm not. By <laughs> using because, that statement, you've because just... by you've trying to literally patronise yeah, the, no, the, uh, the whole... Uh, I don't point... want to patronise the food consumer. <laughs> yeah. Who could that be? Could that actually be me? The point is that if we don't manage to get across to the consumer... To the, the consumer. ...the differences between products that we use and, you know, why DDT is not the same as a modern fungicide... 
and why the worm cast leachate may very well have elements within it that are useful to us and I mean we know it does but my point is that if you take a modern agrochemical it is most likely derived from plant extracts things like worm leachate and so on yes, these but the, are, but the these point are is, things yeah, but you could say just that. let me finish a minute Rich yeah. because the, the, the trouble really is you go important on so much, thing, I no, what it is that I was going to say the point is that if you have a system in place which quite rightly takes out chemicals which are harmful to the environment and that I, I believe is important that if a chemical is damaging to the environment then it shouldn't be there and it would appear that there are instances, and Podchef highlighted one, where chemicals have got through the net, and I don't understand, and they won't tell me how they've managed to do it. But the point is that if you put a block on the research and development of the Bayers, the BASFs and the Syngentas into producing agrochemicals which are environmentally benign, then nothing will happen. You'll ban the chemicals. They won't do any research and development because the politicians are likely to ban what they come up with for reasons that they won't tell them now. The important thing is to tell them you produce the agrochemical, you test it rigorously, and you test it in terms of what it does, how it does it, and what residues are left where. Rich, over to you. So I, I think one of, the, one of the things that infuriates me about f- uh, farmers, per uh, se, is that uh, there's one classic example that uh, recently a spokesman from the NFU had said that there's no real scientific evidence behind the, the need to ban the certain, certain, some of the pesticides that this new EU directive has, has specified. Well, wouldn't it be much better? You see, farmers are so reactive rather than proactive. So wouldn't it be much better, exactly as you say, Phil, to trial these things rigorously for several years, possibly decades, to make sure that, uh, that they are harmless, rather than keeping them in the system and keeping them um, in use, uh, potentially uh, so that they, can, you know, they, they have hazardous effects to, to, to the environment before you realise that they're, that, they're, uh, that they're harmful. So, I mean, you, know, you, you say about DDT, well, DDT is a classic example of problems associated with chemical um, applications, but the reality is that there's been something like 40 pesticides banned over the last decade all of which were previously thought to be harmless. So it's not just one little isolated incident. But you know, there are there are examples of real of real problems, and and um, and I think I think you know farmers instead of being overly sensitive, which is a which is a real sort of causal problem really in, in amongst the farming community, you know, take the bull by the horns and and remedy um, the, the 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 ways that they they behave. So rather than relying and and being um, being being overzealous with the with the use of uh, chemicals and relying on those things in order to manage their their land in appropriate ways why not just be more imaginative and creative and work out different and use different applications i mean you know and, and also this, this this sentiment about um uh, you know organic farming not being the the, the be all and end all not being the the answer not being something that can can replace conventional agriculture well if you read a lot of the stuff that the soil association talk about then they're real advocates for the fact that organic farming can produce sufficient foodstuffs to support uh, you know, the global population. I mean, I don't want to get into an argument about organic farming. All I would say is it can't. And I would say that some of the, <laughs> no, chemi- <that's> helpful. Some <laughs> of the chemicals that the Organic <laughs> Soil Association standard allow are going to be banned they under are. the EEC. But you, yeah, we, but we I should, should, should realise as well, though, Phil, my, there, my are, point, there are four... Phil, let you answer the question about why don't you be proactive as a farming community and, and I'll tell you, being And I'll tell you reactive. why that is, that farmers are reliant, sadly, on chemical companies to do the research. In the past, the government has paid for research and development on an independent basis so that it's not paid for by the chemical companies who make largest profits out Mm. of these chemicals. And that research and development has by and large gone. So that the farmers are left with what the chemical companies offer us, if you like. Now, they are constrained by ever tighter controls and it does take years to get new chemicals onto the books and it's getting harder because the the criteria on proving that it's safe has got better and that's why over the last 40 years you've seen chemicals get banned as they have discovered that by applying the new 
more rigorous testing methods that they throw them out. But what has happened now is that you have a complete turnaround of how they assess the chemical. It's not based on what it actually does. I'll give you an example. As a mixed farmer, I like to think that I operate quite a long rotation, which helps me, and it reduces my costs on chemicals, and it reduces my reliance on them. Mm. And you have to put the economics into it, because the cost of a chemical is significant. You yeah. know, I don't chuck it around just for the hell of it. And a longer rotation helps that, and I think that's important. Podchef mentions it. But I use, because I live in a wet part of the country, a fungicide called a triazole. Now, under the EC regulations, they're talking about banning that speculatively. There are no issues that I know of with that group of chemicals. It is pretty much benign, except to the fungus septoria that we're trying to control with it. And it looks like that could be banned. Is that for when the plants are damping off? No, it is a a fungal disease, septoria, that wheat (coughs) suffers from. And it is promoted by rainfall. But what is interesting is that we as farmers will be banned from that. It's been around a long time. It's passed every test that everybody's, anybody's ever put on it. It also happens to be the same chemical that you would use for athlete's foot and is used for thrush oh, in women. Just now, the yeah, point yeah, is you have... that you can't have these ridiculous double standards. If the chemical is harmful, get rid of it. If it's not harmful, don't say... It is, when you don't know. And we've got politicians telling us I think, it might be harmful. Do you not, think, no it's better, do you not think it's safer, though, to say that, potentially, if it is harmful, then it shouldn't be used? Prove that it's harmless, rather than prove that it's harmful. Also, I th- can I just come in here? Isn't the problem that, as gardeners and as farmers, everyone wants a quick fix? So the reason that these chemicals have come into play yeah, of course. is because... Everyone wants a quick fix. That's and true. isn't it the case that over the past 40 years we've learnt there aren't any quick fixes because they cause other well, this problems? Well, this is the thing, though. I mean, this is, that's so, exactly right. I mean, that's a good point well made. It's the, the reality is that, you know, if you think about life before, you know, 1940s, you know, before the, before the war, then farming was, was very much a different thing to, to what it is today. And it was really hard work. So, of course, after the war, it, during the, the beginning of the agricultural revolution, we needed food. And also, people had the opportunities to buy these products that, that essentially made their life so much easier well of course you're going to think well that's a wonderful thing i think that you've got to that the origins of agriculture we we know now politically that some of those behaviors need to change absolutely and they have richard you cannot argue that after the war the government dished out chemicals to farmers and said we need the food get and put this lot on there yeah and we did as farmers and then as time went on Testing techniques got more sophisticated, we found out the error of our ways, and we have been refining them ever since. But what really gets my goat is that the comment that just because it's a natural chemical, you can put it on there without... If you're going to put worm leachate on, you should subject it to the same tests. Same with Bokashi. These things Absolutely. are all chemicals you should, you and they're all potentially but harmful. But there, there is a real contrast between some of the chemicals, the, uh, some of the organic certification that the Soil Association uh, allows, for instance, you know, rotenone and, and soft soap and some of the, the, the copper uh, derivatives, copper sulphate and the like, because they break down very quickly. So why are they the going ground. to be banned? And... Uh, <laughs> Well, for various reasons, I suppose. Go on, but there's, but there but are, why, there is a Rich, comparison. Some of the, some of the nicotinoids that you talked benign. about previously, when they were in our, in our last conversation, have a half life of over a thousand days. But I mean, how can that? How can that possibly doesn't break be a good down, thing? Richard? Copper, copper doesn't break down, element. but copper exists naturally in the soil. Though. Absolutely, not all soils. But my point is that under the new regulations, they're going to ban it. Why would they do that if it was benign? Why isn't there an enthusiasm to try the natural <coughs> methods? Um, how is it that Rob, the nurseryman, comes to me yesterday and says, I've been doing my worm tea trials for the past three years. It's completely changed the way our tree nursery operates. I've sent it to my brother and he's a cynic and he's totally changed his methods because worm tea sorts out damping off. I think you will find... How come that's not the case? I think you will find that that is the case. 
and I think that the limiting factors in agri- I think I think you find that much more in horticulture where you've got higher values and costs per acre if you like that that is where these things start off mm. and that as they become more extensive then you can do that. But my what own about my own you view, as a thinking man, as an individual that's prepared to condemn the actions of others, take the bull by the horns and use your initiative to uh, apply some of these things. Because in the, the, you the make bacchary so in the farm. I'll give you an example. So why, one, not, why not do a trial of worm casting leachate on wheat, Phil, says Podger. Fair comment. So what am I going to trial it for? Am I going to trial it as a soil conditioner? Am I going to trial it as a, a fertiliser, as a fungicide? If it's a fungicide, there are perhaps six different application windows and probably four main diseases that I'm aiming at. The idea of a little patch, this is a, a, a company's whole trial programme for 10 years in, in one go. When you consider all the options and the fact that it's replicated and backwards and forwards, and you're also assuming that they're not already doing it, which they are, because these natural substances, leachates and so on, that do things, contain within them chemicals which are actually the things that are doing the job. And this is what these companies are seeking out, because there's not much point in them selling cans that are mostly water or mostly this, that and the other just because there's no point. They want to find out what the active ingredient is that does the job and then they want to test it for rates, harmful, efficiency, efficacy, the whole bit. And as you say, prove that it's safe. I'm with you on that, that if the chemical has doubts, then test it some more until you've either realised them or prove that they're not doubts. But what I cannot deal with is this idea that because it's natural or because the soil association say it's all right it's not harmful utter rubbish i i agree with that i mean i I would always say that because one group because they have a certain persuasion says something is is absolutely the case then you you don't necessarily believe it just purely because you you've read it but um you have to consider that uh, organizations like the soil association are not in the same position they they i think that uh, the soil association promote organic farming because it is a better practice i would be the fine chemical with companies promote the use of chemicals on. because of their shareholders but the point is that the bordeaux mixture and the copper sulfate comes from the same companies who are selling me cutting edge fungicides it's the same firm that sells them yeah. it, my distributor had all the organic producers phoning up and saying can we buy in a big stock of bordeaux mixture because it sounds as if they're going to ban it mm. Now, to me, that is a ridiculous state of affairs. You've got organic producers saying, times are a bit hard now. Can we be not organic for a few years and not compromise our organic status when we go back to being organic in a few years' time? It's utter rubbish. That's, that's, a, bit, that's a bit ridiculous, is isn't it? sustainable farming, which doesn't damage the environment. It will compromise it, because all farming does, organic or otherwise. But get rid of the chemicals that are harmful and get the testing done right on the new chemicals with the proper research and development that do the job for efficient food production, including that rotations and mixed farming, and you're often right. And that's, an, and that's another point. I mean, really, this, this EU directive, is, has, uh, I think, is the sentiment behind it is generally to encourage sustainable farming practice. I agree with and their to sentiment. to encourage more farmers to do, as you do, rotate their crops, as a gardener does. That's fine, to, Rich. To and avoid the, the document that you, you brought in for me to read, in particularly small writing, so I can't see it. <laughs> but I agree with the sentiment, but sentiments are for politicians, science is for scientists. And at the moment, the EEC is putting forward a situation where the politicians are playing at being scientists, and they have no idea. We've got two more bits of feedback on this before we move on. And I think the thing is, whoo, rocket. Okay, this is from uh, Stephen Watkins, and he's a Nuffield scholar. And he says, I've just been listening to your latest podcast. It should not be Farmer Phil who leaves the sofa. It should be Richard. (laughs) How does he think there'll be enough food for everybody if we don't use pesticides? There has to be a balance in the use of pesticides, and his views not balanced. If he would like to look at the active ingredient in cream for athlete's foot, or even the cream for thrush, not the bird, which are applied liberally to sensitive areas, <laughs> oh Lord, 
he will see it's the same active ingredient that Pharmaphil is using to control septoria in his wheat. Next time he has an itch, perhaps he should try the worm tea that will give him worms in his pants. Best wishes, Stephen Watkins. There you are. Well, I, I would say that uh, perhaps he should have a conversation with a, with a biodynamic farmer and ask them how they can farm as successfully as they do without the use of pesticides, rather than me, who's, uh, who's not, a, who's not a, a farmer, but has sensible, uh, common-sense approach to, uh, to land management techniques. And no thrush. Is he, what is he, a Nuffield <laughs> scholar? <laughs> no thrush. <laughs> and, uh, and, well, I think, that, you know, the, the, the similarities between a, um, a, a farmer applying a, a, a chemical constituent over uh, several thousand acres of land and, uh, and a little uh, fingertip full of cream on a, on a specific little ailment finger, uh, is, 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 is a bit tenuous. That, it, that, I've just got to pick that up because that completely oh, demonstrates honestly. a misunderstanding of how it is. Because I'll bet you that you will find that the exposure to the chemical is a factor of thousands of times more by using the cream than anything that you would get even from walking in the field when it was being sprayed. And lastly... But you haven't taken into oh. account to bioaccumulation, have you, Phil? Listener, I can't again. Not all chemicals are accumulative. I can't stop. But again, <laughs> it depends on what they are. But a great many are accumulative. How do you know? I don't know because there's sufficient evidence out there to back up those, Go on, then name those, one. those claims. Well, for instance, the, the, uh, one of the chemicals that you were talking about... What were you talking about this I'll morning? I'll tell you in one the, that's accumulative. Copper. Copper. We've copper. done that. Well, I know we've done it, but I'm telling you that I know that the scientists know which ones are cumulative and which aren't, and you don't. Well, in which case, you've asked, you've asked. Now they've been faded out, here's Neil Gibson, and that's toast with a really bad itch on her elbow. Better put some cream on that toast, I should say. Bit Thank of that you, athlete's Phil. foot cream would do that. That's enough. Thank you, Farmer Phil. I've been meaning to mail reference <laughs> podcast 166 of the European Pesticides Directive. What a great debate. Toast that encompassed all the environmental, practical and commercial issues, unlike the majority of the press, which focused only on the environmental points. Toast. She's been at that organic cream again. Shut itchy, up, Farmer Phil. Itchy, itchy little spot on her elbow. Good to hear the follow-up in podcast 168 as well. So well done, team. You've had another corking go at it. I don't I'm think we've sure... finished it. Have we? No, we haven't no finished it. I don't think we've finished it. Because actually, all it's given us is more food for thought. So I have to go out now and find, more research, find some more evidence, more for, evidence uh, to back needed. up my statements. Absolutely. Well, made, yeah. There was only a couple of moments, dear listener, where Farmer Phil started pointing, <laughs> and he's got a new, less aggressive point. He tends to hold his finger and his thumb together and, and sort of pound it out towards Richard. And Richard sits back I can see gently <laughs> on his sheepskin rug takes it all in yeah. without a care in the world. I can see these little, little beads of lightning shoot across <laughs> the, uh, the backs of Phil's eyes. And the only thing you can see from Ricardo is when he's completely about to lose it, his nostrils. I thought you were going to say the only thing you can see is when he's completely out of his depth <laughs> that that glazed look comes across his face. No, fun, Phil, shut up. The only thing you can see is his nostrils gently flaring. <laughs> there we are. Now, yeah. Rich, back to things much more important. Yes. Your green manure, love. Uh, the green manure, yeah. Time is, time is that uh, any, anybody that's uh, sowed some, uh, some tears or some grazing rye uh, over the winter to protect their soils should dig them in now, really, in the garden. You know, get them dug in end of February, and that'll give you the next few weeks time for them to deteriorate and uh, break down in the soil before you, you can knock up the tilth with your, with your fork and uh, get some seeds in, you know, April. This, this year... just around the corner, I was going to say, it? it's been a classic winter for green manure to be the very best thing because all the yeah. rain and so on that we've had it stopped that nitrogen leaching absolutely, away absolutely absolutely because you know what will happen now though is we'll have this because when it's time to sort of dig it in you'll go out there and you'll, you'll just you'll, you'll shovel in your, your green manure and it'll be a really mild smell <laughs> it won't die the frost that we need then to kill the roots will cease to exist but we shall see but um, yeah now's, now's definitely the time to do it and garlic Garlic. If you're like me and you didn't get your garlic in, uh, I mean, it's an interesting thing with garlic. Terry, who is the uh, the, the, the voyeur of all things uh, veggie-like, plants his, his garlic at uh, Halloween. 
I know other gardeners, like Carol Klein, for instance, who says she uh, plants her garlic you know, around, around the sort of winter solstice. And uh, me, because I, I, you know, I just forget to, to do things. <laughs> I uh, obviously the, the garlic the, the, they weren't really a feature in the in the autumn in my mind uh, or, or Christmas. So what I'm going to do is plant some cloves out there now in February. Hopefully that will give them time to establish a bedding and uh, and start to root. And it just all it means really is that you get a later crop. Garlic loves rich soil, so you can uh, if you've had the had the foresight to mulch a load of well rotted horse manure or the like onto your, onto your veggie patches just rake that in and plant those garlic cloves right in amongst that and they'll love it and we've got a great video coming up where rich and i are off to michael's to make his raised beds grow oh fantastic yeah i forgot all about that That'll do you have good. different varieties of garlic rich? you do have lots of different winter varieties and of garlic. spring onions yeah you do well there's lots of different varieties of garlic i mean obviously commercial growers prefer certain types I've got no idea what the varieties are. All I do is is uh, is have various cloves kicking around the house that I put into the into the ground and away to go. Very but scientific, some, yeah, really. absolutely. And uh, my my approach to, to gardening is, is is decidedly unscientific, uh, but it seems to work, which is which is good. It's a wonderful thing to garlic to have, and and one thing that uh, you tend not to to see much of, I, I suppose, for because of social reasons, is, is fresh garlic. You know, I mean, rather than pull your bulbs out and let them dry for ages, you know, eat your garlic straight out of the ground. It's delicious, absolutely beautiful, as is a freshly pulled red onion, but, uh, yeah, it's really nice. Green garlic baked in butter. I'm sure that's all it was, a bit of seasoning, and you can have... It's, it's oh, yeah, another yeah, farmer fill recipe. Yeah, wonderful thing. So, wonderful. I'll tell you what, we, we had some next? beautiful... You know the cod you, you, you mm-hmm. ate the dad? Well, a really good uh, recipe is to cook it up with some pasta and the chorizo. And Sarah did some of, some of that with the cod. I mean, that's like, yeah, besides the point, but, yeah, that was very good indeed. Anyway, Rich, can you hear me? I can. I can, yeah, of course, deafness. Deafness was a feature in the Fishbourne head uh, for the last two weeks. In fact, I can only hear today. I've been, uh, been utterly deaf for, for two weeks. Is that because yeah. air is not a very good transmitter of sound? Yeah, and it's compacted earwax. It was. Uh, oh. It's, oh, dear. Hopefully, share that with the listener. You've, you've gone through hell today. Hope you're not just sitting down to your lovely tea and compacted earwax. You're scholar, Joe. Having heard what I what I said about him, will be thinking, "Oh, I can pack the other ear for you." <laughs> <laughs> so, Stephen, if you'd like to come round and give him a good wallop, just well say always. the word. Well and always. your dog's deaf, so man. Yeah, that's a very sad thing, and, and and a very another sad thing that happened a couple of weeks ago is I walked up to uh, to put the chickens to bed, and I looked across in the in the goose pen, and there's my lovely uh, lovely light Sussex cockerel. Cocker's lockers, as uh, as Sarah affectionately uh, knew him by, uh, just uh, motionless, stone dead, Aww. stone dead. And I think the, for, for some odd reason, the Another gate the gate was open. No, oh, it was a shame. It was, it was a sad thing indeed, because he was a bit of a, a character. And uh, you know, I think if you allow yourself to get attached to animals, which is why it's interesting to see how Phil felt about his cows, you you really do feel uh, you know a little bit of emotion. And so that was a sad thing. So I buried him on the hill anyway. Um, with last year's uh, next to last year's lamb, so they so they they get to see over their their estate that was. And, got a new uh, one. Yeah, it's the same. Yeah, we did. We went and got a new one. We went to, we went to get a light sausage cockle, but we came back with this ostrilorp, which has a. Uh, Is the that most... like an astronaut? Uh, no, <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an Australian. It was a it was a, a buff orpington that went to Australia and came back. Oh. Uh, and uh, he's a very handsome chap. He's, he's and he's got the most wonderful strut. He sort of picks up his uh, picks up his feet and strides strides forward. And he's very calm. And that's but what we you wanted. reckon that Calming your influence. cockerel had come to grief to say at the what hands? What sort of horses that was like then? There's no point in asking me because I've forgotten what he said. This is why I didn't mention it because I thought I can't remember. Those strutting cockerels, you know, Phil, as your jockey oh, days, God. you're supposed to say what sort of horse it's like. Well, Michael reckoned that it could be like a Lipizzaner. Lipizzana, that's right, that's right. Yeah. Which are the preferred mounts of it the does, Spanish riders. It does have, school, have, a, yeah. have, a, have a certain <laughs> walk like that. Carry on. But anyway, it, what was interesting was that you thought that it might your original cockerel might have succumbed at the hands of your geese. Yeah. And do you think that that was because the cockerel got ideas above his station and <laughs> ventured uh, into yeah, a yeah. dangerous area? I think. Because geese uh, can be very aggressive. Yeah. I think what happened, you see, is that there's a couple of little brown hens that are real suckers, and they sometimes they sort of push their way underneath the electric fence and go into the goose pen. And I think Mr. Cocker's lockers went in to protect them. 
and he ah. stood his ground and uh, you know there's two big ganders got all, goosed you know, what's gonna what's gonna happen did he look no he pudding? looked completely perfect not a mark ah. on him which was odd but it's pretty much the only thing that could have happened to him. I think he must have just got an unfortunate blow um, via goose bill to the back of the head or something like that. And keeping on the death theme, <coughs> the two porky pigs have gone to sausage heaven. So, uh, <laughs> all in all, hopefully we'll pig. be here next week unless we actually drop off our own perches. I do feel that this week has been... Looking a, at the dog, there is a chance that again. that's come to grief. And so... If you would like to write a Wiggly review... <laughs> <laughs> Could it be a do, happy one, do please? Try, do try and I feel we it. haven't quite resolved the pesticides issue. I, no. I think that's going to be, there's going to be a certain sort of pesticide undercurrent for the next few episodes. I think so. I think there's something brewing. Yeah, I certainly mm. don't feel as though I'm, I'm fulfilled. No, you're not released of this, no, are you? No. I, don't I haven't shouted at Phil. I haven't ranted at all. I no. haven't sort of, uh, haven't felt the shivers down my spine yet that I, no. I feel I needed to complete an argument with Phil. I think next time it would be better if you two stood up <laughs> opposite each <laughs> other. <laughs> just sort of lamp, just lamped think, each other. Yeah, <laughs> I think both end up looking like toast <laughs> with our feet together. <laughs> if, if we do do that, I'll make sure that I do a video cast. <laughs> yeah, just very naughty, I and so you just want to cause problems between us blokes. <laughs> Certainly not. Um, and so if you've got a chance to give us a review, perhaps if you listen to a more cheerful show before you put it up, that might help. But we'd be very grateful on iTunes if you popped up a review. Other than that, come and join our Facebook group. We are rocking. And last week we gave away chocolate. So if you weren't there, you missed out on... 60 boxes of lovely, yummy truffles. Oh, wow. Delicious. Oh, fantastic. So, for another week, we'll be back next week on the Weekly Sofa. It's goodbye from me, Heather. And it's goodbye from me, Farmer Phil. And it's goodbye from me, Richard. Wiggly Wigglers, really raw roll. <laughs>